0: Oh, okay. Well, listen, we want to welcome everyone who is here with us. Um, I know that all of the meetings sounded, you know, just incredible. And therefore, thank the Lord. I'm here because I have to be here. <laughs> if, I don't, if I'm not here, you won't get my uh, seminar. But nevertheless, I too wanted to go ahead and hear some of the other presentations. I said they sound really good. But I believe the Lord is going to bless um, for those of us who are here. And I know that God has something special to show us as it relates to the experience of the three angels' messages. You're going to find that it is one thing to talk about the importance of the message itself. And we need to understand the message intellectually. We do need to understand it. But at the same time, there's an experience that's supposed to come out of the message. And that's where many a times we find ourselves missing the mark. So what happens is a person like myself. I'm going to be honest with you. I have attended uh, many meetings, and throughout my 20 years of being in the Seven Day Adventist Church, and I've been at meetings where I I've heard the most strongest points of present truth that I've ever heard in my life. But the one thing that I kept finding over and over and over again, even when I used to attend, uh, or not used to, I still attend, you know, certain camp meetings where you could hear a lot of the wonderful truths for this time. I mean, hearing Daniel and Revelation faithfully taught. I'm not talking about the erroneous things that people are using nowadays with Daniel and Revelation. I'm talking about true, faithful Bible teaching. And I've been in these meetings. You'll hear a lot of expressions about the need to get ready, our need for victory over sin, The fact that there's a coming crisis via the Sunday law that will be passed in America first and then it's going to branch out throughout all the world and it's going to take the majority of the people in the world to an overwhelming surprise. That's why the Bible says that there are few that will stay on that road that leads to eternal life according to Matthew chapter 7. So as I'm listening to all these messages, I notice something. Year after year, you have the same meetings. You can call the meetings whatever you want. You can call them all the famous group meetings like this one here. You know, you got GYC, you have Army, you have all sorts of different camp meetings in different groups. And what happens is it's almost like people just keep coming year by year. But as you dialogue with the people, you find that sometimes we're either in the same experience or worse. In other words, how is it that we can keep hearing these startling messages, keep hearing all these powerful truths and all these things, but it does not bring a practical change in our experience that actually sticks? I'm not talking about emotional excitement. You know, when we're at holy convocations like this, this is typically where people can stay very focused. We're in the mountains. We're away from a lot of other things. You know, so it's easier to stay focused. But typically, when we get back into the valleys of what we call life, It's like a lot of times all these great things we've learned has gone right out the window and we're either back to where we were or even worse. Can any of you relate to what I'm talking about? And this is why it gets to a point that you start looking for even more. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to tell you the truth as a seven day Adventist uh, teacher of God's word, as well as a student of God's word. I firmly believe that we are right at the brink of a most tremendous crisis that is getting ready to take this world, even this church, as an overwhelming surprise. I firmly believe that. But watch this, understanding how close we are to the crisis alone is not gonna get a single soul ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ or for that crisis. In other words, as we gain the knowledge of prophecy, there's an experience that's supposed to be connected to that knowledge that makes us ready for the prophetic events. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at this, and then after we look at this, then we're going to have a word of prayer as we go deeper into our studies today. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, you find what I would say is perhaps the highest reason for Bible prophecy. Right. We are a movement based on prophecy. We're told in the book Evangelism 196 that ministers should present the sure word of prophecy and present the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation as the foundation of the faith of Seventh Day Adventists. We're told that. And therefore, we should teach it in connection with the words. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We are a movement of prophetic design. We are not just another denomination to hang on the wall of Christendom. We are a movement of prophetic design. But what is the purpose of prophecy then? Notice what the Bible says as we consider 2 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to read just verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. The key reason, the chief reason of why God gives us prophecy. Let's notice what the Bible says. Are we all there? Amen. Father in heaven, as we consider this simple point, From your word, give us understanding, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says we have also a more what? Sure word of prophecy that we would do well to take heed unto it as unto a what? Light that shineth in a dark place until something happens. What is it that has to happen? It says the day dawn, and then what else? The day star arises in our hearts the great purpose of prophecy is so that it may cause the day to dawn and the day star to arise in our hearts now go to revelation 22 verse 16 very quickly so we can just identify who is this day star and some of your translations say morning star let's notice what the bible says who's this day slash morning star is that will arise in our hearts as a result of understanding prophecy. Here's what the Bible says Revelation 22 and verse 16. The Bible says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the what? Bright. Bright and morning star. Jesus is that morning star. Jesus is that day star. So the purpose of prophecy is to make us aware of where we are in time so that we will step fast to make sure that we are secure in Jesus as that day star. He must arise in our hearts. Christ must be within us the hope of glory. That's the whole purpose of prophecy. And I'm going to tell you the truth. It is possible from the pastor to the pew that an individual can understand and break down prophecy and still not reflect the lovely image of Jesus. It is possible that someone can dot the I's, cross the T's, understands the dates, the times and charts and the list goes on. And at the end of the day, miss the whole point. Christ is not formed within the hope of glory. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, for some people, the way they're studying prophecy right now, all they did was go from being an ignorant sinner to an intelligent sinner. And both ignorant and intelligent sinners are going into the same lake. Ignorant and intelligent. Intelligent. So we have to desire something more than knowledge and information. I'm amazed at, at what I see in Adventism. You see a lot of people who love to always find out the newest, the latest, the most startling things, but they won't even live up to the light that they learned years ago. And the Bible says we are to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. So this is why I believe we need to scale back to the point that it's not so much just the seeking out of new and startling things, but Lord Help me understand prophecy in such a way that I can have an experience with Jesus connected to my prophetic understandings and may Christ arise within our hearts. And that's why our focus is not going to be the technical information of the three angels messages. I believe that there are plenty of messages like that on Audioverse. I believe there are plenty of messages like that on various websites. I believe that there are many individuals in the Seventh-day Adventist church who understand more of the theory of the three angels than the experience. And when you understand that time is almost finished, then brothers and sisters, you and I must understand what we need to do is get the experience connected to the theory so it can go from the head to the heart. This is what God wants to do. This is the assignment that I've been given to you over these next few presentations. So as we prepare to receive from Jesus, how can I enter into the experience of the first, the second and the third angel's message? How do I enter into this experience? I believe God is going to do something special in us. I believe he's going to do something special for us and that the spirit of God will fall afresh upon us and give us power to live and be a witness to those in our homes, to those in our churches and to those within our communities and in this world so that we can finally finish the work and go home with Jesus. With that being said, let us bow for a word of prayer. I'm going to invite you to kneel with me if you could. If you cannot kneel, just go ahead and bow your heads where you are. Otherwise, let us kneel together and let us hear God speak to our hearts as we prepare to go through this study, the experience of the three angels' messages. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you so much, Lord, that you are truly opening our eyes and helping us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. Father, I know that you have been longing to see your people get the theory because, Lord, we can't experience what we don't know. And so, Father, I dare not minimize the theory. We need to understand it. But could it be that just like the Pharisees of old, we're told in Desire of Ages, page 309, that the great mistake of the Pharisees was that they thought that an intellectual understanding of truth constituted righteousness. They failed to take the truth that was in their head and allow it to take residence in their hearts. And Lord, I believe there are many of us that are unfortunately filled with the spirit of the Pharisee today. We believe that our intellectual understanding of so many things somehow has tricked us into believing we're more prepared for the final events. But Lord, we want this theory to go from our heads to our hearts. And this can't be done by might or by power, only by your spirit. And so, Father, we ask, please, send him now. I pray on behalf of all the speakers, Pastor Davis, Pastor Barclay, Father, Pastor Bohr, all of those who are being used by thee, may we all, as a result of all of these seminars, Know what it is to have a walk with Jesus, even as Enoch walked in days of old. And Lord, I thank you that you have heard this prayer. And while you're blessing others, please, Father, do not pass me by. There's more about Jesus that I, too, would learn. So may I even gain a fresh revelation of thee as a result of these studies. Is our prayer we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter. We're going to Revelation chapter 14. This is a study that we're going to do well to take notes. So please make sure you have pen and paper handy as we go through Revelation, the 14th chapter. Now, in Revelation 14, we find that God wanted to express to our hearts the very last message that is designed to finish the work. And there's a reason we know it's going to finish the work. In Revelation 14, starting right there at verse six, John, the revelator says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, and he had the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, John had the everlasting gospel. Amen. 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 Now, connect Revelation 14, six with Romans 1, 16. Those two verses are very much comparative one to another because Romans 1, 16 helps us understand more clearly what the focus is of Revelation 14, 6 and onward. The Bible says in Romans 1 and verse 16. Now, if you get there or when you get there, please say amen. Amen. All right. In Romans 1 and verse 16, a very powerful companion text, I believe, to Romans 14, 6. The Bible says, for I am not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ. So Paul is making it clear. I'm not ashamed of this gospel of Christ. And then he says, for it is, which means he's about to define what the gospel of Christ is. It says, for it is what? Um, The power of God unto salvation. And it only belongs to who? everyone who Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jews, Gentiles, doesn't matter if we believe. The Bible says that we can experience this, but notice that it's an experience and not lip service. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what? Power. Power is not necessarily or limited to something you talk about. Power is something you experience and demonstrate. Are you following? Power is something you experience and demonstrate. The reason why we say something is powerful is because there was an experience connected to it. Are you following? So therefore, the Bible lets us know that the gospel is an experience. Therefore, when John says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, that means that those three angels messages that are following after this vision in verse six is an experience that God wants his people to enter into as a result of the knowledge. We learn it first here and then it transitions here. It must be brought into an experience. Therefore, the question is not so much do I know the three angels messages? The question is more importantly, are you what? experiencing the three angels' messages. It's one thing to say, do you know the first angels' message? It's another thing to say, have you had an experience in the first angels' message? It's another it's one thing to say, do you know the second angels' message? It's another thing to say, are you having an experience in the second angels' message? And of course, it's one thing to say, do you know the third angels' message? And then are you experiencing the third angels' message? And so you'll find that it is an experience along with a message. Now, what's the end result? Go back to Revelation 14. The reason we know that the three angels' messages is, according to the Bible, designed to finish the work in this generation, the reason we know this is let's go to the book of Revelation 14. But now we're going to look at verse 14. What is the fruit? What comes out of the reality that we now have an experience with the three angels' messages? Notice what the Bible says is the end result of it. Verse 14. It says in Revelation 14, and we're looking at verse 14. If you're there, please say amen. The Bible says in Revelation 14, 14, and I looked and behold, a white cloud And upon the cloud one sat like unto the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. Why? It says for the time is come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is what? ripe." Ripe. So when the three angels messages is understood And experienced and does its full work. The Bible says harvest time comes. Now, what, according to the Bible, is harvest time? Matthew 13, 39. In Matthew 13 and verse 39, what is harvest time? Let's notice what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 13 and we're looking at verse thirty nine because we just want to identify what is harvest time. Matthew 13 and verse thirty nine. This is coming from the parable of the wheat and the tares. And Jesus is now explaining the parable. So he's taking all the symbols and he's presenting the reality. And he says in verse thirty nine of Matthew 13, the Bible says, if we're there, say amen, please. The Bible says in Matthew 13, 39, it says the enemy that sold them is who? The devil. The devil. And then it says the harvest is the what? Is the end of the world. So the Bible is showing us that the three angels' messages is designed to bring about harvest time, and harvest time is the end of the world. So as long as we understand and demonstrate, as we read earlier from Councils of Writers, page 29, as we understand and demonstrate the power of the three angels' messages, it is designed according to the word of God to bring about. Harvest time. There is no other gospel that can do that. That's why it is with all due respect that we say to any minister, no matter how big and how popular they may be in this world, that are in any of the churches that constitute Babylon. They are not qualified to give a message to bring about the harvest. We're just being sensible Christians. We want harvest time, don't we? We want the end to come. We want Jesus to come. Amen. So therefore, the only people who should be coming to our schools and coming to our churches to teach us are individuals who has a message that can bring about the harvest. If they don't have a message to bring about the harvest, they should not be teaching at our schools. They can come visit. They can sit down and they can learn, but they cannot teach us because they have nothing to offer. They don't have the message that brings about the harvest and everything must be focused on the harvest. Amen? Amen. Now, notice this. When you think of the Millerite movement, the Millerite movement were called what Adventists. They were called Adventists. Are you Adventist? Are you Adventist? I don't think so. I don't think you're Adventist. I think you're seven day Adventist. In other words, is there a difference? Let's notice. Let's notice a quotation. I want you to look at this. Look at this quotation here. Now, I want you to look at this because this is powerful. It says the scripture, which above all others had been both the what foundation. foundation and the central pillar of the advent faith. Hold on to that. It says the scripture, which above all others had been both the foundation and central pillar of the advent faith was the declaration unto the two thousand and three hundred days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. These had been familiar words to all believers in the Lord's soon coming. Now, this was the foundation and central pillar of what faith? The Advent faith, right? Now, watch this. The what understanding? The correct understanding. Now, for God to inspire Ellen White to say correct, automatically by default means there must have been what? An incorrect way to understand it, right? It says the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of whose faith? Our faith. faith. So therefore, it becomes imperative for us to understand the Advent faith. Those Adventists, they were definitely building off of Daniel 8 and verse 14, but they did not have a right understanding of what the prophecy was leading to. Correct? Amen. And therefore, it was after October 22nd, 1844, that now there was a better understanding or what is called a correct understanding. William Miller did not understand the work of Jesus in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. They did not understand that. They thought the sanctuary was what? The earth. But the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. So, therefore, Seventh day Adventists, our great focus is built off of the correct understanding of what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and then making sure that we are living in full, complete cooperation with Him. Amen. This is the experience that we need. This is the foundation of our faith as Seventh-day Adventists. And I want to let you know, brothers and sisters, that there are a lot of Adventists in this world today. Advent simply means coming. So there are a lot of people who believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, but does not believe in a heavenly sanctuary. Don't be ashamed to tell people who you are. You are a Seventh-day You are not just simply Adventist. People could mistake you for somebody else. You don't want to have be subject to mistaken identity, do you? Let the people know when they say who you are, what church you go to. Don't say, oh, I go to the Adventist church. And many times, quite honestly, we say that because we're ashamed. We're fearful that people are just going to say, oh, you're those quirky people that go around doing stuff on a Saturday versus a Sunday. You know what, brothers and sisters, when people ask me, what church are you a part of? I say, you know, I'm very thankful to God that I'm privileged to be a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I let them know that without a problem, and I make it clear that I let them know I am very thankful to God that I have the privilege of being a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You'd be amazed at how sometimes just by the way that you articulate to people who you are will determine if they want to keep talking to you. If you look ashamed of your message, they're going to say, well, then why in the world do I want to hear it? No, thank you. Close the door. But when somebody says, what church are you a part of? And they say that with that bent brown, that ugly face that sometimes we see for those of us who do canvassing. When we can go to that door and we can say, you know, I am so thankful to God for the privilege of being part of the Seventh-day Adventist church today. And God has a message for you. You'd be amazed at just by the boldness of that stand. Some people will say, talk to me and tell me your message. They're open now. Jesus said that there's something I want my people to do. As a result of the fact that I am in the sanctuary, I am doing a work of judgment. Now, again, I told you I'm going through the experience because I don't have time to go through point by point by point by point on how do we know it's judgment and this, that and the other. I think there are plenty of messages that you'll get access to that information. But what is it that God told us to do because we're living in the hour of the judgment? Go to Revelation 14 and now let's look at verse seven. Let's see what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation 14 and verse seven. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, let's see what the Bible says. And when you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in Revelation 14 and verse 7, it says, saying with a loud voice, do what? Fear God God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. The Bible makes it clear that the first step in the experience of Of the first angel's message is that we must learn to do what? Fear God. Once we understand how to fear God, we can then know how to give glory to him. Because we are living in the hour of the judgment, we will offer him true worship. We will come out of Babylon. We will not accept the mark of the beast. We will keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus because we're built off of the foundation of fearing God. God. It starts with fearing God. You have to understand what that means practically. A gospel that is not practical is a worthless gospel. We have to start with it up here, but it has to go from here to here. Amen? Last night, we talked about John's work, our work, and we looked at John and we looked at some things that was on a theoretical point, but also on a practical point. But the whole mission is to build off of that foundation and to go deeper and deeper into the quote unquote practical experience. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Do you believe that this is the message for seven day Adventists right now to tell the world to fear God? You believe that? All right. Now, is there anybody here who is not a seven day Adventist? Is there anyone here? All right. Thank you for joining us. God bless you, sis. You're in for a treat. Anyone else? All right. So now watch this. The majority of us in here, and there's quite a bit of us. So the majority of us here, we are all Seventh-day Adventists. Now, if you're Seventh-day Adventist, then you cannot help but to know that this is the foundation of our faith, which means that we should understand this. And as a result of understanding this, that means that we should clearly understand what we should do in light of this. And the first step is to fear God. So if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to fear God? What would your answer be? Talk to me. This is your opportunity to talk. We're studying. This is, We're going to try to make this class-oriented. Okay, my brother says that, sis. To think more clearly of what God thinks of our behavior than what our companions think. Beautiful point. Yes. Respect. respect. Now, that's good, too. A lot of times you hear respect and so on. Now, Do you think that we should just give people our opinions when they ask us? Because I'm going to tell you the truth. When we go out to the world, are we supposed to go out to the world? Yes. But didn't we learn last night that sometimes the souls that need to be saved are even those within our own borders, our own church, right? So that means that whether we're teaching members in our church or teaching those outside of our church, the whole mission is, is are we to tell them our opinions? No. no. We must tell them what? The word of God. God. Thus saith the Lord. So what we want to do is we want to surrender our opinions and we want to go ahead and submit to the word of God. Amen. So if we are going to tell people to fear God, it would make sense that we direct them to the word of God. Go to the book of Proverbs chapter 8. What does it mean to fear God? Notice what the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. When you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. Now I want you to see this. Proverbs 8 And verse 13, the Bible says, Proverbs 8 and verse 13, my dear friend, you gave the answer, I'm giving the verse. So we're working, we're, we're iron sharpening iron. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is to what? Hate evil, pride, arrogancy, the evil way, and the forward mouth do I hate. The Bible is actually telling a group of people to enter into an experience with God that will cause them to hate anything the Bible calls evil and then tell the world that they are to enter into the same experience. Now, as beautiful and as is this clear, is that a clear verse? Would you say that that's a verse that clearly defines what it means to fear God? Yes. Amen. Yes, sir. I, I started looking at pride once in the spirit of prophecy. Yes. The one thing that really surprised me it says one of the major things that we're proud of is our own opinions. Absolutely. Perhaps that's why we share it so much. So therefore, God wants to get us away from that. You know, the great, uh, uh, great gospel worker amongst many. Now, I say amongst many because there's movements today that have tried to deify practically William Miller. And that is that that is not right. God has not put William Miller on any higher par than many of the other uh, patriarchs and prophets, certainly, or even many of our pioneers. But I will say that William Miller, I believe, had a beautiful principle when he said this. He said, we must learn to talk Bible, think Bible, eat Bible, drink Bible. Everything that we do must be based on the word of God. Now, where do we get that thought from? Matthew chapter four and verse four. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's why we want to draw people back to the Bible rather, as my brother clearly pointed out, than our opinions. Now, the Bible says fear God. Yes. But what is it? It is to hate evil. Now, I'm going to tell you that makes perfect sense, because if God is doing a pre-advent judgment right now, because remember, the Bible says in Revelation 22 that when Jesus comes, he's coming with rewards, so if he's going to give a reward, that means he had to do a judgment before the reward. Amen. So when Christ comes the second time, he's not coming to judge per se. He's coming to give rewards based on the judgment that he did before the reward time. Amen. Now, understanding that the Bible says, what are we supposed to be doing during this pre Advent judgment? The Bible says we should be learning what it is to fear God. And we have just discovered, according to the Bible, to fear God is to hate evil, or I would even say to hate what God hates. Does God hate evil? He sure does. To fear God is to hate evil. Now, as clear as that is, let me show you practically a problem. Jeremiah 13. In Jeremiah the 13th chapter, now we have a problem because it is true that the Bible tells us That we are to fear God and to fear God is to hate evil. Amen. But now let's notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah 13. You and I have a responsibility to enter into an experience ourselves, learning what it is to fear God and then to help others. And this includes little boys, little girls and teenagers and adults and youth. And it includes every class of the human lifestyle. Now watch this. In Jeremiah 13, verse 23, notice what the Bible says here. It asks a question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? What do you think the answer is? No. No. Can the leopard change his spots? What do you think the answer is? Of course not. It says, then may ye also do good that are what? Accustomed to evil. Now, the word accustomed in the Hebrew, it means taught. You know, most people do what they do today because they were taught it by somebody. There are very few people who do what they do today because that's, quote, unquote, just them and who they are. I mean, especially, you know, as a black man, you know, when I look at what's happening in many communities where there are a lot of urban black youth and I, and I see them and some of them, they kind of walk with these certain walks and they have these faces and they kind of make these looks upon them. And I'm thinking to myself, you didn't come out of your mother's womb like that. <laughs> you did not come out of your mother's womb like that. So what happened? They were taught that. Are you following When we see a lot of our young friends and they come out and they look like the latest rock and roll stars, the latest pop stars, the latest heavy metal stars and all these things. They did not come out of their mother's womb like that. They were taught that. Are you following? But what happens is if if you subject yourself to teaching so much, it becomes a part of you. And sometimes you don't know how to separate yourself from it anymore because it's become so ingrained. God says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Of course not. Can the leopard change his spot? Of course not. God says, then how may he do good when you've been taught evil so much that now it's your custom to do evil? The only way it's going to happen is it's going to require a miracle. It's going to require a miracle. How can an individual get to a point that they can break the cycle of evil? You know, most people today, you know the reason why we sin so much? It's because we love it. It's a part of our lives. We love it. It's who we are. It's our makeup. And as a result of that, here goes God saying, I want to get you to a point that I want you to hate the very thing that you love and have lived doing all your life. Perhaps we can understand why it's so hard to find the people that really know what it is to fear God. You see, brothers and sisters, you want to know the only way a person can really fear God The only way an individual can honestly fear God practically, which is to hate evil, is something else must happen. And I believe that to a very large degree, perhaps this is what's missing, even in a lot of our discourses of those who teach the three angels' messages. Notice what the Bible says in Amos chapter 5. I want to show you a principle here. Amos chapter 5. Now, in Amos, the fifth chapter, we find, I believe, a powerful gem from the word of God that can give us direction To understand, how can I I make this thing practical? Lord, how am I going to get to the point that I hate what you hate when I love the opposite of what you love? I I, I love the very things you hate, Father. How can I get to this point? Well, I believe the Bible is going to help us. Amos chapter 5. Now, when you get to Amos 5, please let me know by saying amen. Amen. Now, in Amos chapter 5, the Bible presents the idea of hating evil, but it also tells us something else that I think is the key. Notice what the Bible says in Amos 5 and verse 15. The Bible says in Amos chapter 5 and verse 15, it says, hate the evil, but what does it say next? And love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. The Bible presents another thought process that I believe a lot of times we get confused on. Notice that we saw that the fear of the Lord is to hate Evil. God is calling us to enter into an experience with him that we hate what he hates, which is evil. But the problem is, is that we have been taught evil so much. We have practiced evil so much that it has become our custom. So therefore, it's now a strange thing for God to tell me to hate something that I live by and even love. So, Lord, how do I do it? Well, God says, well, hate the evil. But what's really going to break the cycle is when you learn to love evil the good. You know, one of the reasons why we struggle so much in Seventh-day Adventism is we learn that there's worldly music and that's evil, therefore we say cut it off. We learn that there's bad diet, so therefore we say cut that off. We learn that there's bad dress, so we learn to cut that off. We learn that there's bad uh, uh, associations, so we cut that off. We learn there's bad education, we cut that off. We cut off, cut off, cut off, cut off, and we're backed up to a wall, and we've cut everything off. But many of us have ever learned what is the good? While I'm cutting off all the evil, what is the good that I'm supposed to embrace? Did you know that in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 16, and I thought to myself, I said, this is so interesting. Go to Isaiah 1, 16. Do you know the Bible shares this theme all throughout the scriptures? Hate evil, love good, hate evil, do well, and the list goes on. Go to the Isaiah chapter 1. Notice what the Bible says here. In Isaiah 1 and verse 16, when Isaiah was reasoning with stiff-necked Israel... And he was seeking to call them into a covenant relationship with God to come back to to, to their God. Isaiah was pointing out all their different problems. But then he says something very significant in verse 16. And here's the key. The Bible says in Isaiah 1 and verse 16, it says, wash you, make you clean, put away the what? Evil doing evil of your doings from before mine eyes. And it says cease to do evil. But then look at the very first words in verse 17. What does it say next? Learn to do well. Learn to do well. There there is more to a relationship with Jesus Christ than trying to just simply stop doing what's bad. While God definitely says cease to do evil, while God says don't just cease it, hate it. That's true. But brothers and sisters, have you ever tried hating evil and found yourself not able to do it? Do you know there's people who said, that's it, this is the last time, I'm never going to do this bad thing again. I mean, we're clear on it, we know it's evil, we know it crucified Christ afresh. we know it broke his heart, and the list goes on. We know it, but it seems like after just a little while, we go right back to it and demonstrate our dedication to it. We're loyal to what we love. That's a principle that governs humanity. Human beings are loyal to what they love. Think about anything that you're loyal to, and you'll typically find that one of the reasons why is because you love it. This is why Jesus says if you can learn to love the good, then Jesus knows you'll be loyal to it. And you want to know why I know it? What is sin? What is evil? What does the Bible call it? How does the Bible express what sin and evil is? Transgression of the law. First, John three, four. Sin is the breaking of God's commandments. Amen. Do you know that Jesus gave us the formula for victory over sin in one verse in the Bible? And it was found right there in John 14, 15. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? He said, if you love me, what does he say? So therefore, how do I get to a point that I can hate evil? It's when I love good. And Jesus said, there is only but one that is good, and that is God. When you love God, you will hate evil. And never before then. I'm telling you right now, and I especially say this to our young people. Listen, you can find out about all the bad music all you want. And and I'm, I'm serious because God knows I have too many sermons on audio verse and otherwise. So you know that I take a stand against foul music coming into God's church. I take a stand against all these different foul forms of worship and foul forms of entertainment. And the list goes on. There is much evil, not just in the world, but much of it has even come in the church. That's clear. But brothers and sisters, just by simply trying to cut off, cut off, cut off, cut off, that in and of itself will never make you a child of God. It'll never make you a child of God. What we can do is we can break away from it for a season, but then we're going to come back to it. Why? Because until you break the love cycle. The reason why many of us sin is because we love it and you're loyal to what you love. That's why we have young people who keep fornicating, even though they know it's a sin. That's why we have a whole bunch of people who cuss and swear, even though they know it's a sin. It's not about many a time. It's not that the people are saying, I didn't know that. The problem is, is there's a love connection to that thing. Something must break that love connection. And the only thing that can do it is when we learn to love the good. And there's only one that is good. And that is God. Strange enough, the extension from God is his law. And Paul says in Romans 7 that he says, thy law is holy, just and good. When we learn to love God, we love what God loves and God loves his law. Therefore, we learn to love God's law. And when we love God and his law, we will dare not break it no matter what comes in our way to try to tempt us to do it. That's the issue, brothers and sisters. The issue is. We don't love Jesus. The issue is. There is not a love for God. Do you know the greatest goal of my life as a father of four children? I have four precious little ones. Stair step by November 26th, they will be ages 14, 13, 12, 11. My precious children. My wife and I, it is our greatest desire. I just I don't want to see my children just simply cooperate and not do bad things. What I want to see is my children to love Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I will never feel secure otherwise. There are many parents today, I remember one time we was with a family, and this family, they were talking about how they had uh, so much dominion over their children. And they were talking about how their children do everything they say. Now, one of the things that the, one of the, the, the parents made us aware of is that they beat their children. They say when their children, and I'm not saying that we should spare the rod. I believe there is a place for the rod. It needs to be done right. But I do believe there is a place for the rod. Amen. Amen. But at the same time, they, they would try to say, well, you know, uh, watch this. And they would demonstrate it. They would show us how quickly their children would obey everything they say and do. But then one time we asked them, we said, well, why do you, how did you do that? You know, and they said, because my children understand. If they go wrong, they get it. When they go wrong, they get it. And I said to myself in my heart, at those many years ago, I said, in my mind, I said, But what about when you're not there? What sense does it make to have a child who on the outside cooperate and doesn't do anything bad, but in their hearts they long for that which is evil, sinful, and debased? You think God would let a heart like that into heaven? He would never let a heart like that into heaven. The greatest goal of every parent should be that I can educate and guide my child that they know how to love Jesus Even when mother and father is not there, that's the highest goal, brothers and sisters. And I'll give up anything for that. Even this ministry, whatever it would take. If I found out that my traveling was getting to the point that I'm watching my home disintegrate, you would not see Brother Lemon anymore. Nothing must get in the way of us entering into that love relationship with Jesus and encouraging our children to enter into that same experience because brothers and sisters, that's the only security for this crisis. I've seen too many people who are terribly intelligent on the crisis and they cheat on God's word and God's truth several times over and they are stuck in a rut because they've been trying to avoid evil but they still do not know how to love good. So therefore, the next question, The next question is. I accept. I don't love God. You know, brothers and sisters, the sooner you can accept that if that is in fact your reality. The safer you really are. You know, the issue with Laodicea. The issue with Laodicea is they can't see their true state. Laodicea says, I'm really all right. I'm okay." When in truth. They are all wrong, and the Bible says they are miserable, wretched. Can you accept that about yourself? I have, and I ask God every day, help me see it more. Help me to see how empty and powerless and miserable I really am without you. It is when we can begin seeing that, that's how God can build us up and get us to the point that we can be everything he's called us to be. Once you can realize, Lord, I don't love you. I like many things you teach. There's some things about you that I enjoy. But at the end of the day, my loyalty is with myself and my darling sins that so easily beset me. I need this cycle broken. I need this thing broken. It's until you break this within me, Lord, I'm going to keep going back. And you know what's going to happen? That Sunday law eventually is going to be passed and then it's going to end up coming to us as a test. And because we were not settled in Jesus. Because we kept saying some of me, some of Christ. When the strong arm of church and state come together under the power of the great rebel dragon. That's when many people are going to stay loyal to what they love. And if you've been loyal and loving self, you're going to stay loyal to it, even under that crisis. And you'll be lost. Because, brothers and sisters, if we really understood how soon a Sunday law will be passed in the United States of America. You heard Pastor Davis talk about that thing with Obama and and President Obama and how he's, he's going ahead and stay. Brothers and sisters, we are seeing the deterioration. We are seeing the downcline, national apostasy, national ruin. We're seeing all these things right before our eyes. It won't be long. And the problem is, is that when the Sunday law test comes to you and I, we are told whatever decision you make, it's your final decision. There's no such thing as, you know what, I'll accept the Sunday law, and then later on, you know what, Uh, I changed my mind, that was a bad decision. Nope, the Bible does not make no such statement. Those who receive the mark of the beast have it. And there is no turning back. And this is why you and I cannot wait until a crisis and then try to get last minute righteousness. The Bible says today, if you hear God's voice, harden not your hearts. So therefore, the question is, how can I love Jesus? How do I get to a point that I can actually love him? And that's going to be the focus of our next study. Our next study, we're going to take a 15 minute break. We're going to come back and the whole entire next study. How can I develop this love for Jesus so that I may fear God and give glory to him during the hour of this judgment? If it's your desire to say, Lord, I want to know how to love you. Lord, I recognize that I don't love you. You know, honesty is good, you know. If you can look in your heart and you can honestly say, Father, as I search my heart, I can see based off of the trend of my life. I don't love you. But I want to. And I'm asking you to teach me how. If that's the sentiments of your heart, would you stand? You're being honest with yourself. Lord, I'll be honest with you. I don't love you. Not as I should. Nowhere near it. But by the grace of God, show me how to love you. Christ is going to do it. And in 15 minutes, that's going to be the focus of the next phase of our study under the first angel's message, fear God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are speaking to our hearts directly. You're bringing several things up in our minds, Lord. I saw the intensity upon thy people's face. Lord, I pray that what you have begun in the hearts of your people, please bring it to its completion give us an experience in these messages that will enable us that no matter how hard the winds may blow, we will truly stand though the heavens may fall. This is our prayer, dear God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770 770- 770 Two seven four nine five three seven. That's seven seven zero two seven four nine five three seven. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.